You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to this week's episode of Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is hosted by me, Joe Hakeem, and I'm joined by Nick Britsky of Nick Drinks, Jason Leinert of the Detroit Optimist Society, and Vato of the Hungry Dudes. We are joined each episode by workers, leaders, and analysts of the hospitality industry. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you like or dislike what you hear, write a review. We love hearing from our listeners. You can visit Herd at HerdPodcast.com, follow Herd on Twitter and Instagram at HerdPodcast, and like Herd Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and now here's this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Vato, how are you doing? I am doing well. Well? Yeah. Yeah. I've had a great week, great weekend. Yeah? Yeah. What happened? I had some amazing, amazing carrots. Uh, (laughs) Amazing. Can I just say that again? Lady of the House kills it. They They kill all the food, first of all. There's no question. The service is great. The bar is great. They kill it. Those carrots are just, I mean. So you're talking about the carrot steak. Carrot steak. Okay. And can you talk about the preparation a little bit? Uh, it is, it's like julienne, but it, it puts together, it looks almost like a flower when it, when it comes to the table. It's got some pistachio. It looks like a steak. It's called a carrot steak. I know. It looks like a flower and a steak. All, it's just magical. It, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so there's good. There's sauce on the plate. Yeah. There's, yeah. We, okay. we ordered three of them. Three of them. Yeah. Okay. There's three of us. Oh, Okay. I mean, I was going to ask if it was just you. No, 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 no. We, no, we went there before a uh, show at the Fisher um, the other day. And uh, it was just, I mean, everything there is always, it's just also good. But, but I, I adore their, their ham, the Parisian oh ham. Oh my God, that's so good too. Yeah, with that, with that, that butter. Uh, Dijon butter. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. They, yeah they're and, really, and their tartare is very good. And yep. Yeah. Yeah. You can't go Kate wrong. Kate does great work. You cannot go wrong there. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the national attention's warranted. They, they've had a lot of national press and it's and kate is going kate williams the the chef owner is going to um oh i want to say south beach okay for the uh, food and wine festival um which is good for her going to south beach in february leaving this trash weather that we're having outside yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm not participating in it but i am going to the food and wine festival in april in austin as a uh as a guest <laughs> of the food and wine festival i'm like no I, I mean i bought tickets and i'm going oh okay yeah. all right well i'm yeah, a guest yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna be enjoying that that's great who's gonna be down there uh jonathan waxman is on there uh andrew uh zimmer zimmer um tiffany Faison. um there's you know there's a list of celebrity chefs and restaurateurs and whatnot mm-hmm. um they have uh the you know, the package in the morning, there's two mornings that they have packages where they have like culinary demonstrations or you can go to a tasting or you can go to like another tasting. So you get a, you get a choice of what you're going to pick there. And then at night there's different events. There's like a taco event one night and then another night is a grilling event. And so we bought all, we, we got, we got a full pass. This is my second food and wine festival. The first one is actually when you and I met, it was after that. I was in uh, Zayuantaneo, Mexico. Uh, I went to the Food and Wine Festival down there, and that one had uh, Michael Simon and Marcus Samuelson. All right. Yeah, those photos. I remember those photos. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Food and Wine does a great job putting on events, and I think the Austin one would be great as well. So, okay. So, it's not not a food and wine festival. It's food and wine, the publication putting it on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that was true of the one in Mexico as Correct. well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All great. right. So, they, they put on festivals around the country? Around the world, I think. Around the world, yeah. I would imagine. But, uh, yeah, definitely around the country. They had the Aspen there's one in Aspen, one in New York. There's an LA one. I mean, they just so the South Beach one is probably their pro- yeah okay proprietary food and wine festival. It's confusing food. because it's a food and wine festival put on by food and wine, right? <laughs> yeah, and there's not there's not a lot because I, I, I look at the different ones because I I want to have when if you're going to spend some money you want to have some you know a great festival experience you want to have something someone that's done this before, um so it kind of covers all the bases. The weather in Austin is great. It's like I just checked, like, right now, it's like 70 degrees right now. I mean, it's probably raining right now. But. Yeah, there, and speaking of festival experiences, so there, there was a, a whiskey festival yeah. that was supposed to happen at the uh, Royal Oak Farmer's Market this past weekend. Two days before, two days or a day? Yeah. A day? Two days, a day, I, think, oh, I don't know. Whatever, a very short period of time. The the event decided to move itself from, not, not the event, the, the um people putting on the event decided to move the event from the Royal Oak Farmer's Market to the Athenium Hotel. In downtown, from Royal Oak to downtown Detroit. Yeah, Greek Greek town, correct? Right. Yeah, right on Monroe there. Um, is that Monroe? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so th- there was a huge uproar. Um, the, the event page got just peppered with uh, with comments, negative oh, comments. Yeah. Um, people that had have hotel rooms in Royal Oak and all that. Um Terrible publicity. Uh, and it turns out that the, they couldn't secure a liquor license out in the Royal Oak Farmer's Market, so they somehow wow. secured one down in Greektown. Um, we had Anthony Mara on here a couple, few weeks ago. Um, not his event. Be very clear about that. Right. It's definitely not his event. Um, but th- there are events out there that are trying to pull one over on people, and this is an example of that. Or do too much. You know? Too much or not not do their due diligence like whatever the, whatever they're doing, but um yeah it's it's uh seems to be a story like that every other month now uh, I, or maybe even more than that right yeah so let's bring our guest into this conversation I'm very uh, excited about this so I, I um very, our very guest much. is from the Detroit Food Policy Council. Uh, Kibibi Blount Dorn is the Education and Engagement Program Manager for the Detroit Food Policy Council. She has a bachelor's in urban and regional planning from Michigan State University and a master's of urban planning from Wayne State University. She is a lifelong Detroit resident and has been a community development advocate and community gardener since she was a teenager. She has worked with several community organizations in the city of Detroit before coming to Detroit Food Policy Council. Kibibi lives in Detroit's Cats Corridor with her wife and two children. All right. Kibibi, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so um, I am going to go on a limb and say that a lot of our listeners probably are not familiar with the Detroit Food Policy Council. Can you please explain the council's role? Absolutely. So the Detroit Food Policy Council is a nonprofit organization that was formed in 2009. Um, Our work centers around creating access to a just, sustainable, and healthy local food system. Um, We primarily do this through education, increased um, awareness, and through shaping policy around the local food system here in Detroit. Um, we work with, we, we work by connecting people working in different parts of the food system together so that we have um, a systems approach to some of the challenges that are happening in our local food system. Can, can you define food system really quickly? So that's something that I'm not 
familiar with? Yeah. So the food system, we talk about the food system because there's so many activities, processes, and people involved in bringing the food that we eat to the people who eat them, right? So there's more than just you're hungry, you go to your fridge, you take out something to eat. That food was purchased from somewhere. It was transported to the grocery store somehow. Um, Somebody probably processed it from its raw ingredients into what you take home to prepare. Someone grew those raw ingredients and someone made a decision about what those crops were going to be grown to be sold into the food system. So we want to think about all of the activities, all the processes that actually interact with our food and also all of the um, institutions and systems that we feel impact our food system. So we also think about our institutions, like our healthcare systems and our school systems. We think about um, how our food system interacts with the environment and the environmental justice movement. We think about how the food system is impacting our neighborhoods and our education system and things like that. What, is there one single issue that you guys are focused on more than any other? Like this food system issue seems massive, right? Um, what do you think is the one of the most important issues that you guys handle? That's a good question. You know, at at the beginning of the Food Policy Council and at a couple points since we we the organization was formed, we sort of sat down and made a list of all the issues we think are important to talk about and focus on. And we usually come out with a list of about 20 to 30 different issues. <laughs> um, so we typically narrow that down to about three. Um, the three issues that we currently focus on are um, access to quality food, and we typically think about this about as access through our retail grocery system. Um, the second thing is access to economic opportunities within the food system. Um, and the third thing is health and wellness, so thinking about how food impacts our health um, and how especially nutrition inform- information education impacts the health of our community residents. And, and I got to say, like, you could put, like, subsets underneath of that that are limitless. I mean, that's just, there's just so much involved. I'm, I'm so, and I came across this, I'm very happy to come across the uh, DFPC and uh, very happy that it was started. And can you go a little bit back to that? It was started by city council. Is that correct? Yes. So actually, the Detroit Food um, Policy Council began as a coalition of residents and people from organizations across the city that dealt with different aspects of the food system coming together and saying, we really need some entity that looks at policies that touch multiple parts of the food system. Um, They came together and actually wrote a report on food security and asked the city council to address this issue. And the city council asked that group to come back to them with recommendations. So that group recommended that the city have a food a food policy council and adopt a food security policy that was sort of form the, the framework of issues that the food policy council addressed. Um, so that happened in 2008. The city council approved um, the first slate of members to the Food Policy Council. So the Food Policy Council has 21 members representing different different sectors of the food system, along with four community at-large members. And those members really shape the policy um, strategy for the organization. Are, are there other cities that have similar councils around the country? 
Yeah. So there's actually um, food policy councils are a relatively new entity. Um, back when we first started in 2009, there were probably 10 across the country. Um, but in that time, they've really gained momentum and there are now over 200 across the country. Um, there are 15 in Michigan alone. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So, okay. So on your website, uh, DetroitFoodPolicyCouncil.net, you have your 2017 food metrics report. Um, so I, I want to read a couple of the statistics because I, I think they're fascinating. So 30,000, around 30,000 people, um, they ha- have no access to a full line grocer. What is a full line grocer? So a full line grocery store is the grocery store that offers um, all of the departments um, in, cl- in addition to the inside of the inside of inside aisle items, such as the processed items, mm-hmm. has fresh produce, a bakery, um, a meat department and a dairy department. And so we find that with the spread of um, grocery stores across the city, um, we say that you don't have access if there isn't a store within five miles of your house. Um, so there are, are areas within the city where within a five mile radius, there's no full line grocery store. Forty eight percent of households are food insecure. What is food insecurity? So we talk about food security in terms of um, both at the household level and at the community level. Um, but at the household level, having access all year round to food that is healthy um, and and you can have access to it through a means that you feel is socially acceptable. So a lot of times the 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 common metric is being able to afford to purchase all the food that you need for your household throughout the year. Um, and we find that at least around 40% of our community residents um, are unable to do that without relying on either the emergency food sector or federal or local um, nutrition programs that supplement their own incomes in order to obtain food. So, and, so and, we're not talking about five for five, right? At McDonald's, here, right? <laughs> I mean, no. and, and, and is, that, is this as part of, you know, when you say healthy food, fast food doesn't count. Right. Convenience stores gas station attached to gas stations um grabbing a hostess honey bun or a bag of takis is not right so the um the sort of secondary market of food is what we consider those things to be so um places that only offer highly processed or prepared foods we don't count in the category of full line grocery stores they have to carry you know fresh produce have a a bakery section, a dairy section, a meat section, um, and offer not just, you know, highly processed food items. So and so that 40% of households uh, use SNAP. Uh, SNAP is a government program, correct? Yes. And what is that? What is SNAP? So the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program is what SNAP is short for. Um, the And this is the program that was formerly known as um, food stamps, which most people are familiar with. And this is an entitlement program. So any family who makes below the minimum um, income for their family size is eligible to receive SNAP benefits. In Detroit, that's about 40% of households who are eligible to receive SNAP benefits, meaning they get some amount of um, government assistance to purchase food items for their household each month. And, and the, the SNAP is trying – it's not necessarily geared towards healthy food, but you, you – is there a class or something that goes along with SNAP benefits that teaches people how to make healthy food choices? Yeah. So in the last couple of decades, um, a program called SNAP Education has been funded alongside of SNAP. So SNAP Education is a 
is funding specifically to help educate SNAP recipients um, about healthy nutrition, proper nutrition, help them understand and and make better food choices in terms of purchasing healthier food items um, and how to prepare food. Are, do, did the metrics show that the people who um, should be on SNAP are on SNAP? So typically in Detroit, um, there's somewhere between, uh, you know, it usually hovers around above or below 50% of people who are eligible actually apply wow. and receive the benefit. So there is a lot of work to be done in terms of helping people know that they're eligible and apply for the benefits if they um, if they are eligible. So one of the things that I've always found um, admirable about uh, Detroit, I'm sure it's not just us because, you know, you have these programs throughout the country, but that you can take something like the Eastern uh, – Eastern market and you can take your benefits there and they're worth double. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, it, that, that right there, I mean, those kind of things that, that the farmers do that we do to help families become more nutritious at home or, or buy better stuff. I mean, that's just, I think yeah. it's, it's a great part of the program. That. And that's a great example of sort of um, where policy can really help us. So the Double Up Food Bucks program is the program you're talking about. Yeah. It's a program that actually started in Michigan, oh, okay. um, run by the Fair Food Network, which is a nonprofit organization that matches when customers come to Eastern Market with SNAP benefits and they exchange their SNAP. They usually get a card for SNAP benefits. So they um charge their SNAP card and get tokens in return that they can use at local farmers. But the Double Up Food Bucks program matches all the SNAP benefits they spend at the market. So they, if they come to the market and they have $10 they want to spend at their SNAP benefits, they trade that in for $10 of tokens, SNAP tokens that they can spend at any vendor in the market that takes them. But then the Double Up Food Bucks program gives them another $10 in addition without having to use up their SNAP benefits that they can spend at any Michigan farmer within the market. Um, the benefit, they can use the benefit anytime through the market season. Um, they can redeem up to, they can receive up to $20 a day and double up food bucks and to go on top of their, um, the benefits they redeem. So does it come in, in these forms of these tokens? Is that how? Yes, typically because at most markets, um, the, each individual farmer doesn't have the card reader mm-hmm. machine that reads SNAP benefits. Just There's just one designated for each individual market. So you go to the market office or the market manager, you um, swipe your card for however many, however much money you want to spend. They give you the tokens, and then you can use the tokens at any farmer that accepts them. So here, here's something I, I've thought about before, too. Uh, if this if this is not available to the average person to be able to get tokens, I'm not saying double my tokens, but to be able to get tokens, um, I think that that should happen because that would take the stigma away for people who have tokens to say I'm on these benefit program, this SNAP program. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, you know, this how many decades ago now, and you know, grew up in the neighborhood, and you know, there were people that had food stamps and stuff, and. Other kids would make fun of the kids would have food stamps. And to take away that stigma, if everyone had access to be able to buy the tokens, like I could buy, to- I can cash in 20 bucks, get tokens, and I wouldn't, the person who's cashing in, who's using the tokens at the at the table, right, the farmer wouldn't know any different. That person is on benefits or not on benefits. And I think that kind of takes away a little bit of the stigma that some people may feel about being on benefits. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, at the farmers markets that we see in Detroit, um, in general, there's such a high um, usage of the the sure. yeah. SNAP tokens and the double up food bucks tokens. Um, you know, it really it 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 doesn't feel quite as uncomfortable in some of those settings. But that is actually the philosophy of um, the last version of the Child Nutrition Act, which inform which sets the policy for our child nutrition programs that take place in school started a program where in school districts where 40% or more of students were eligible to receive free or reduced lunch, um, the program would just, you know, for the entire district, district grant free lunch for all students who are receiving school lunch. Mm. Students don't have to, you know, do the paperwork to qualify. They also don't have to say when they when they go through the line at in, at the school cafeteria, like, I'm on the free lunch list. Right. I'm stigma. on the reduced lunch list. Every single student in every school um, that that is operating a, a lunch program subsidized that gets reimbursements from that's great. the school lunch program, every student gets a free lunch and no kid has to worry about it. And that's actually something that... Um, we have been really strong advocates to, to, to have permanently in the the Child Nutrition Act, so that it happens every year. And those those kind of acts, provisions like those, something like the School Lunch Act, along and similar to the Farm Bill, they get reauthorized in Congress every five years. Some things are guaranteed to be in there, but programs like that are programs that sort of they try them out. Um, they see how they go. Every time it comes up for reauthorization, they sort of think about, do we keep this program? Do we not keep this program? So we've done a lot of advocacy around that program in the school lunch. Right. How do you quantify somebody's sense of like, you know, what they're worth, right? And someone, you know, someone's, oh, we're just giving them money, blah, blah, blah. Who cares if they, you know, feel belittled or whatever. But I think that's a huge thing, especially for for kids. And, and you know, people are proud of, and, you know. You're getting at a larger issue sure. of of the, the kind of guilt and shame that people that that our society pl- hoists on people that that have to struggle. Sure, and there's this idea that they're, you know, what's the old quote? Like, you're you're not poor. You're you're just a millionaire who's not trying hard enough or uh-huh. whatever. And so there's this sense that you know if you have. You know any type of benefit card, uh, be it EBT, you know the the uh, EBT or whatever, that you're doing something wrong. Yeah, and so th- this the stigma that is there is not only mi- misplaced. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So I was at a grocery store uh, probably about six months ago, and this woman was talking to me. There's a woman in front of us. Was you know was third in line or whatever. No rush. I don't care. You know whatever. Take care of your business. Um, the woman in between us, the, the one talking to me was in a rush for some odd reason. And the woman at the counter getting her groceries checked out, you know, was trying to take care of everything. She had some, I don't know what she had. I don't, don't care what people buy. It doesn't matter to me. And so this woman all of a sudden like nudges me and it's like, yes, you know, don't <laughs> in personal space. I don't know you. Um, she's like, look, she's buying soda. And I was like, so I don't care. She's like she's she's got a benefits card. I'm like, I I don't care. Why are you being loud about this? I was I was like, this is making me uncomfortable. And I said I said this is making me uncomfortable. And she's like, well, she shouldn't be buying soda. I was like, I don't care what anyone buys. They can she can buy whatever she wants. I if she's buying soda, who who is to say the ben, the benefits card is covered soda? I don't care if you buy soda. Maybe it's your one treat for the month. What the hell do I know? 
And so the, these pe- the and there's a stigma that you're talking about. Yeah. Because someone thinks that they know better than the person buying what they're buying. Doesn't seem fair to me. Right. You, 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 the government mandates you can buy whatever you these items on this card. The government right? probably should mandate that you can't buy. So, I mean, I'm just saying. But, but it, somebody it, in the government probably got paid off to say soda is okay. But but to go to your point, there was a huge uproar about people like, oh, they shouldn't be able to buy steak. They shouldn't be yeah, able. Yeah, yeah, whatever it may be. Right. Who 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 cares? The the, the fact is, the, the guidelines are there, right? Yeah. And people follow the guidelines. You can, and you know, as we said earlier, you can teach people, educate people, and say, okay, well, you know, instead of soda, you should buy maybe buy fruit juice or maybe buy something like you know, yeah. whatever. Sodas, something uh, without sugar. Well, yeah. Or sugar. Well, less, well less whatever. Sugar. Yeah, yeah. But but again, but again, to my point, if this is someone, someone's buying a two liter of Coke to last them a month. There's not much harm in that. I'm sorry. There isn't. And I understand your point of view, yeah, from yeah. the sugar point of view. I get it. But but to that point, and you know, let, let's bring up this um, this document, this uh, graphic that, that, that I shared from uh, Food and Fearless, right? So one of the things that th- this, this is an Instagram account, f- at Food and Fearless, um, they posted a graphic called The Privilege of Nutrition. Yeah. On the left side is lower socioeconomic status. On the right side is higher, right? Both of us and all of us in the room, I think, come from a higher socioeconomic status. So we can we can position ourselves and say stuff like, you should avoid sugar. Sure. Right? So on the one side, there's no no bus stops near the grocery store. On the other side, this is the low, that's a lower, the higher socioeconomic status. It's the worst. I have to go to three grocery stores to get all that I need. That hit, that hit home, man, because I go to three grocery stores every week. I I, I, I do too. Yeah, and and I I said you know just the other day I was at um at a grocery store and I was like, well, I'm not buying meat here. I'll just buy meat at the local butcher. <laughs> I, I, that, that's a really privileged thing to say. I, I mean, and I recognize this all the time. Like I'm just like, holy shit, I'm really lucky. Yeah. I, I and I say that a lot, but I think there's people out there that might not recognize that, right? Yes. And, and so the 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 fact that I can first of all, so three grocery stores, right? right. Means you can the, drive there. Drive there, exactly, or get there. You know, however you get there, right. but you have the money to spend on gas, yeah. right? There, there's all of this trickle down that mm-hmm. you know the available time in your schedule to actually do all that shopping. Yep. Um, the understanding about what's available at each grocery store, the time to you know to to prepare the food that you're purchasing at all the stores. All those things are sort of to to go back to could be oh, one of your things that you know that you guys have uh, advocated for is the proper nutrition education stuff. So you you guys have partnered with with folks who teach people at the grocery shop, right? Yeah. So we work with a lot of um, other community organizations that do services like nutrition education, um, cooking education. We um, had a program a few years ago to help train folks that are doing cooking classes and like churches and community organizations to help them uh, to train them in a program called a taste of African heritage, the, which is really focused on learning cooking with plant-based um, recipes and sort of focusing on reducing sodium, reducing sugar, yeah. kind of, you know, using a fun, uh, easy to use program to sort of teach all of these nutrition objectives. Um, and I think the, the, you know, part of the issue is is also about where we legislate um, and how we impact people's personal decisions. So on the one hand, providing a, a, a public benefit such as SNAP to folks who 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 are relying on that to help them make their food purchases 
um, also involves, you know, allowing them to purchase whatever food items they they choose with those benefits. Um, because I think it's not really anyone else's place to say how a person with who's relying on those benefits spends their food dollars any more than it is, or you know, someone's place to say someone who's using their their funds that they that they've earned to spend on their on their food purchases. It's it's um, you know, I think a level of personal freedom that there, there has, that is I mean, that is I'll, given to each I'll push person. Back but a we little also, bit. I push back a little bit because I think. But we also don't provide, you know, we also don't provide the information about to the general public, like as a right, you know, no one graduates high school understanding that drinking too much sugary beverage will have a negative impact on your health. It's not a standard um, that we ex- that we expect everyone to know before they are at the point in their life where they're making decisions For, about. You know what I what did understand purchase. at the end of high school? Calculus. <laughs> you know how often I've used calculus? Right. Never. But, you know, I, I, go, I, I But this is, this is a, that's a great point. Education's a great point. And this all, I mean, and, and I, I feel like whatever I, you're going to say is based off education. I agree. With, well, I'm not even going to talk about anything that's nutritionally yeah. beneficial. I'm going to say that I've seen firsthand enough people use EBT at a gas station, or not a gas station, but a party store to buy uh, beer and booze, right? And well, you, well, you can't you use can't. EBT to purchase alcohol. And what happens with that? Well, often, they're buying you're, lotto you're tickets buying or something like, like that. Your food and your other stuff, and when you swipe the EBT card, it'll only go towards food that's right. allowable, so, right. and then so the rest we, you have to pay with. And, and your this own goes money back to the whole like this is a machine. This whole thing is a machine, and people have figured out ways to circumvent the machine, and they figure out ways to, yeah, you know, buy. But on the other hand, ticket, we also allow the the beverage companies. To right. yes. to to saturate the market with their products, to right. advertise to Lobby. young children and people who oh. don't have information about nutrition, yeah. um, and a lot of people don't understand that there's nutritional difference between drinking water or fruit juice. There, there's or no there's no uh, sports hero out there who is eating Wheaties and drinking Gatorade. I'm sorry, just not happening. No. They are for the commercials, but that's about it. Yeah, but our kids are susceptible to this, and they they like see this stuff, and they're like, "Oh, you know, blah blah blah." Mm-hmm. And the parents don't know any better because we're not trained. And it becomes a habit. Right. And at the time, at the point where you're making your own decisions about your food decisions, it's it's what, already a habit. What's, a, what's another thing you got there, Joe? Uh, so the next one is I eat whatever they have at the food bank for the week, and not much else. That's the lower socioeconomic status to higher is I only eat whatever is allowed on my list of approved foods. Ooh, yeah. Lactose-free for some, gluten-free for others. Yeah, and th- this is right. it's a huge issue, right? So these these kind of like these food allergies are intolerant. Not allergies. Let's not talk about allergies even. Intolerances. Sure. Or, you know, I don't like that. If but Allergies are too – I mean – like I said, my kid's got a peanut allergy. He, I mean, he can't go to somewhere that's like, okay, hey, all today, all we got today is white, peanut, butter. peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, right. what what and because allergies are so prevalent as there as as our cultures are growing on, you know, what are what do kids do when they get somewhere? I mean, parents may not know that the kid has an allergy. The vast majority, um, celiac. I mean, it could be anything. Yeah, that's so oddly enough in. There, I've read articles about this. I sadly can't point to one immediately, but the, the vast majority of time, allergies end up with people at soci- higher socioeconomic really? positioning. Yeah, especially well, intolerances especially. Intolerances hmm. are very a very sure. privileged kind of position to take. Um, and, and you know, 
you have an intolerance, whatever, it's, it's still the ability to say, I don't want to eat, I don't want to eat that, right. I, I, you know, or I can't eat that. Um, allergies are very real, yeah. right? And, and, you know, if you have one, you know, I'm sorry. And if you have one and you're in a position where you need to go to a food bank and, and work around that, that makes it even trickier. But what, do, what are, do you know what the food banks are like in Detroit? So Detroit has a lot of um, emergency food programs such as food banks, uh, soup kitchens, client choice pantries. And one of the – but I think what the what the graphic is sort of illustrating is more of like the food preference. Like I'm going to choose to only eat organic products or free-range grown meat and eggs right. or, you know, things of that Grass nature. Grass-fed, pasture-raised, certified humane <laughs> – and the the stuff. food that ends up in our emergency food sector tends to be the same food that is um, flooded onto the market in our in our food retail system. There's a huge excess of that food, and it um, if it if it's for some reason not sold in stores, or there's you know a mistake printing the label, or any or um, just too many too much product on a truck that doesn't make it all the way to its destination. That's the food that ends up in our emergency food sector, and it tends to be the more processed, um, the more processed food items, the the things that are in excess, the things that are more shelf stable, and and some of the you know a lot of the food banks, for example, Gleaners Community Food Bank of Southeast Michigan has really grown in their sophistication in terms of actually putting investment into into purchasing fruits and vegetables from the commodities market so that they are they're able to put those items into soup kitchens also um but for the most part it's the food that is in excess in our existing food system which has a, a high quantity of highly processed foods with right. high levels of sodium sugar all of those cheese things, slices that can't be called cheese mm-hmm. because there's no cheese in them or not 50% cheese in them you know i i know um a uh, growing up, so I, we talked earlier. That I'm a, in the police department. Growing up in the police department, I talked to a lot of folks early on who uh, talked about their time re- coming up in Detroit. And my, I grew up in Detroit. My, my grow up was, uh, you know, way different than some other folks. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, we're middle income, um, but you know, we, you know, had Swanson and Sons TV dinners and things like that. They were saying that they had. Uh, Government assistance uh, type programs where um, where they got cheese. It was uh, it was just called cheese. It wasn't a brand. It was just called cheese. It was in like in a white wrapper. Um, when they got milk, it was just like a white carton. Didn't have any brand. It was just you know, it had milk on it. Does that stuff still exist? It does. And so what actually happens is that the um, is, this happens especially in the dairy industry, um, which the the government sort of commits to buying the excess of in order to to help that industry continue to thrive when there's fluctuations in the market. But what happens is the government literally purchases excess commodities from um, from the farmers and the growers. So things like milk or, um, you know, whatever else there's a lot of milk is one of the things that that, that happens more often. And the government itself purchases that those dairy products, um, processes them and and bottles them themselves. So that's why like it literally comes in a in a bottle that just says milk because it's not a brand. It's just mm. the excess that the government has purchased and is redistributing through um from the from the commodities program into emergency food. How do you feel about that, bye? 
How do I feel about that? What yeah. do you mean? I, I mean, it's, it's it's so awkward to me, you know, like that we have that we we have a government of, you know, we're pushing like we have farmers, for blah blah blah, and like you got I don't know. I'm gonna get in a soapbox in a second, <laughs> but it's just so it's so disturbing that we have we have these markets of like, um, you know, a mix of, you know, you're gonna get a a box of cheese that's just called cheese, and then I, you know, am going and I'm. Like trying to find the best, like real. Oh, I'm gonna go get some raclette from down the street. <laughs> you know, I went out to Zingerman's to get a to get a wheel of cheese uh, a couple weeks ago because I wanted the best cheese from Vermont, and I they they're, Whole Foods didn't have the cheese I wanted. I didn't yep. go to Zingerman's. You know, and and this is the class difference, and I I, I kind of feel like an asshole for it, but at the same time, it's like, I mean, I and I don't, I didn't do anything wrong. So that makes me not feel like an asshole. But I also feel like there's so many people out there that just don't have a chance, and it's just so unfair. So, so and I guess the larger issue, you know, as, as we progress down this path is how do we level the playing field? How, how do we make this equitable? How, how does that happen? Exactly. So one of the things that we focus on really heavily is that, um, you know, the growing of a sustainable, local, and just food system means that we're paying attention to both sides of the food system. So we're not just paying attention to um, the food that's being produced and saying we want there to be healthier food, more high quality food, food that's produced without harming the environment. We also want there to be um, a food system where the people who um, who grow, who cook, who, dis- who drive, who transport, who distribute, everyone who's working within the food system also has safe working environment, a livable wage, opportunity for advancement and opportunity for ownership. Um, and we really feel like that is, you know, part of the key in making sure that there is a more level playing field currently in um, Metro Detroit food businesses and across all sectors of the economy represent the third largest employer of of residents of the city of Detroit. Hmm. So that means that if those, if the majority of those jobs are, you know, low wage, unskilled, um, jobs with no opportunity for advancement, then our community residents are are locked into these, um, these poor paying jobs. If we're if we're focused on making sure that those jobs are are sustainable, can sustain a family, um, offer jobs, economic security, and opportunity for advancement, we're we're equipping, you know. 30% of our residents, over 30% of our residents with um, the ability to earn a higher income, make make better food choices, invest in healthier food. And those those information about, you know, we, we, we know already that better nutrition education and understanding about good food increases with, for higher socioeconomic status. Let me push back a little bit with this, especially – you know, being that in the food industry, we employ people. If living wage at this point, you know, use fifteen dollars an hour as an example, which you know, some economists say that's not even enough, right? right? Um, so, if if we were to raise, um, if all it, umbrella, right, all all of the restaurants, all the grocery stores, everyone's paying fifteen dollars an hour. The cost of that has to be passed on to the consumer, right? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do a 15 – I, I 
firmly agree that we should do something where people make a living wage, that all of us need to work towards that. But how do we adjust the cost of what we're producing as a food mm-hmm. producer? Well, part of that is that, you know, most of those consumers that you're price- that the cost is going to are also the con- the people who are making a higher wage. Um, we've actually seen in in other states where where the where the restaurant industry has brought up the the minimum wage for their workers. Um, I know there are examples of at least two states that I can't name off the top of my head. I should have them memorized. Um, but actually, restaurants in those states where they've raised the minimum wage for restaurant workers along with the rest of their workers because restaurant workers um, make tipped workers make a sub minimum wage oh, yeah, here in a, Michigan. Yeah, a tip minimum wage. Um, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's a completely different topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's a $4 an hour. Yeah. 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 Right. But restaurants in those, in those places are actually doing better because so many more of their, um, of the residents within a community are afford to be able to eat out on a regular basis, but also because um, the 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 workers that have that higher level of stability have better health. Less people are getting sick in restaurants. Um, they have a better working conditions so that they are able to actually perform better on their jobs. And they are also able to put, you know, more more economic support behind their families and not have to worry about other things. Yeah, I, I'm also conflicted a little bit about this too because I think the families are more healthy when they cook at home if they have good products to cook from. But then that also takes away from the economy that we're talking about here because you know if, if we ha- if we went up to this point of like a higher wage and then had more people go out to eat, then we probably have less healthier people than we had at home. So it's 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 a mix of. I mean, I I'm not. I'll, I'll go on. I'm not as a huge supporter of the. Uh, I think that. Uh, fast food employees are—I don't think that's a long-term solution. I think those those jobs were intended to be like uh, migratable jobs uh, in between time. Unfortunately, they're not for people, and we need to find other places for them to go. I—I I don't know. It's a God. We could be on here for hours and hours. And hours. Yeah, but and, and I think the the thing to remember about if we talk about fast food in general is like the. A, play, a corporation like McDonald's has so many locations. They do. Because they're and they, all franchised, though. But but they also have the ability to the, – the if you increase the, the minimum wage to $15 and you say McDonald's pay your employees $15 an hour – they're just going to raise the price of Big Mac a dollar or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever yeah. that – No more five for five. Well, whatever. Yeah. But, but the thing is um, – it's not that cheap to eat at McDonald's anymore. For the record, haven't eaten at McDonald's in years. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and it's like again, healthy food choices. Yeah. And the, the 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 go back to education, right? We want people to cook at home more. Yeah, it general general like across the board kind of um, response is like people should be cooking more. But there's documentaries out there that will say you know someone will be there's one I can picture the person driving in their car and saying, well, I could go to the grocery store and buy a head of broccoli for $4 or I can do the five right. for five at McDonald's. Right. Um, you know, and, yeah. and that's what it comes down to a lot of times. It's a hot meal. It's done. It's, it's something just, th- you know, here, here, you know, right. eat these chicken nuggets. But then, you know, 20 years later when you're, yeah. So c- but, sorry. no, well, not. Yeah. But a healthy and sustainable food system, you know, has all of those options available. It mm-hmm. has, you know, f- People and families who can and and for the most part do 
cook meals at home and eat them together. Yeah. It has options for eating out. It has options for getting to go food when you are when you really are in a hurry. And there's a balance. So I think the the point is that we we make a we build a system where all are available and and people are armed with the information to make healthy choices most of the time. And in a system where, you know, a, someone who works at McDonald's now is is getting, which is actually not a, um, the, McDonald's isn't a tip. You don't get tips at McDonald's. But the um, someone who works at McDonald's now knows that they have opportunity for advancement in a fine dining establishment where they, where they are guaranteed to make even right. higher wage is working towards that as opposed to locked into a job at McDonald's because they're not getting opportunities to move anywhere else. Um, but what we want to see is the balance among among our options within the food system. So uh, the Food Policy Council has an event coming up. Is this some of the things that you're talking about at the event? Yes, we will. Um, Detroit Food 2019 is our annual conference where we bring community residents, food system professionals, and and policy shapers together to talk about issues within the food system. This year's theme is infrastructure and innovation. So we really want to focus on some of the infrastructure of the food system itself that that act, you know the infrastructure in place that actually moves food from field to processing to to store or institution to plate um and talk about some of the innovations that are that are addressing challenges around the infrastructure here in the city. So we'll be talking about things like um, our institutional food programs and some of the innovations that help bring more local produce into our school food programs. We'll be talking about the transportation and food and some of these issues like depicted in the in the graphic about how are we ma- building a transportation system that allows all people to access food. Um, we'll be talking about the so so when you say that you're saying a transportation system like um, mass transit, or so it, we'll be or, talking about can you know just log into Amazon Prime and like <laughs> have their food delivered. No, that's just, uh, we'll be talking about some 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 transportation programs that are specifically designed either to move food from from the emergency food sector to to reach people at their location so that they can better access it okay. or to bring people to the grocery stores that don't have transportation because um, those are some of the more difficult trips to make if you don't have a car, you know, to get yeah. groceries where you're limited by how much you can, you know, carry in your two hands sometimes. Well, so, and you said, going back earlier, you said that access to a grocery store is within five miles. Did you say five that, miles? That's the standard. Five miles is a standard. Sorry, so, one mile. Oh, one mile. One, within one mile. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, but even so, you, you, I mean, still, five miles seems ridiculous. That's a long ways to walk if you don't have a And that's what I was going right. to say. So one mile in this cold, you know, Michigan winter is virtually impossible. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you were, if you were in Austin, Texas, maybe. Oh, right. Yeah. Maybe you could walk a mile <laughs> and you're like, all right, no big deal. You know, how much, I mean, how many grow, you can't, you're going to have a wagon. What are you going to do? <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, or like that one week in July that we get here. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> oh the one week of summer. You mean? Yeah. <laughs> what's the? Uh, I, I'm going to go jump back to what's the what's the format of the event? So the um the Detroit Food Summit is um a conference style event. So we'll have panels. We'll have a keynote speaker. Um, one of our keynote speakers will be Ricardo Salvador, who is with the Union for Concerned Citizens. Um, we'll have another keynote address from. Uh, the owners of the Farmer's Hand in Corktown, which is a store that supplies all of their products from 
uh, Michigan growers and processors. Uh, we'll have breakout sessions on issues from uh, hiring practices of restaurants and how um, Restaurant Opportunities Centers of Michigan is building a platform to help uh, remove some of the some of the bias from our hiring practices to um, media and f- we'll have a workshop on media and food and how media representation um, influences how successful some food businesses are over other food businesses. We'll have sessions on our the school garden program within the Detroit Public Schools Community School District. I always forget right. the new longer name. Um, so issues about a variety of topics related to um, the food system here in Detroit. We'll have a session on um, on our grocery store initiative and how it's working to understand the grocery store environment here in the city and connect community members to their local grocers. The uh, So the 2017 report said there's 74 full-line grocery stores uh, in the within city limits, correct? Mm-hmm. How many are there now? Uh, I believe now there's 80. To don't quote me, okay. somewhere okay. Some, there's a few more 80. now. Okay, yeah. and that's how many people are in the city right now? Ooh, just under seven hundred thousand. Just under seven hundred thousand. Um, it's one hundred and forty-four square miles. And this term gets got thrown around a lot, especially when Whole Foods is coming into Detroit. Detroit is a food desert. Do you, right. do you do you agree or disagree with that statement? So I don't like to use the term food desert. I think um, it sort of implies a situation where there's a complete lack of uh-huh. options. Um, and and actually a desert has lots of life in it. It just looks different from like a deciduous forest or something like, or a rainforest. Uh-huh. Um, but I think the real issue is that there are conditions within the city of Detroit that cause inequitable access to healthy and affordable food. And those are the issues we want to address. The, um, you know, the intense economic divestment from the city of Detroit often leads our, the retail sector as a whole with, um, with a lack of understanding about what the opportunities are within the city and what the, what the economic, uh, buying power is within the city. But the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation in 2010 did a study that found that Detroit residents are spending over $300,000 a year in grocery retail outside of the city of Detroit. So that means there's opportunity for that much grocery retail to come they're, into they're all, the city. They're going to Walmart and Target. Right. I mean, instead of their, instead of, you know, you know, the local stores in the city. So if, if we are focused on making sure that the stores with, that exist within the city are providing for the needs of our residents and that new stores are able to come into the city in the areas that are um, completely underserved by the grocery retail industry, you know, they they would actually be able to reap those, those, um, that revenue. And within the city, we tend to have, you know, now with, um, with Myers and Whole Foods, we right. actually have a couple of chain grocery so, stores so in the city. So I was going to ask you that. Other you, than that, they're all independent but do, stores. Right. Do you think that uh, part of the, problem we have is that there's so many independents that we don't have that um that notion of the chain and people like they just they still flock to the chain right people flock to your kroger's they flock to people buy groceries at target and because it's a known place and if you go to uh university foods right and university foods i always thought had great food from and that's in uh offered by wayne state look at southwest detroit oh my god honeybee and you know like uh 
E&L and all those places, like they have, they're phenomenal. Fan, they are fantastic markets. Right. Um, I mean, and and uh, Honeybee and E&L probably are outliers just because but, of the, you know, Hispanic kind of thing. But when you take something like University Foods on Warren, yep. over by the Lodge, yep. that's a great grocery store. Mm-hmm. It's a great grocery store. They put a lot of investment into their uh, employees. Um, there's, and I'm, oh, I feel so bad. I forget the name. There's a grocery store over on West Chicago and South of freeway. That's a, uh, green light locate. They, the, one of the first places that became, they were the first green light grocery store. They were the hundredth green light in, uh, Michigan. If you don't know what green light is, look up green light Detroit, um, and learn all about it. But that's a place that invested in this, in, in this folks. But if you're just getting into the city and you don't know, any of these independents, I mean, you probably are going to question them just because you don't mm-hmm. know who they are. So what do we do yeah. to educate the city to say, hey, you know, Joe's Market over here on Cadu isn't a bad place to go. He he gets in some good f- produce. He's got some good food that's not expired, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do we do about that? Yeah. And so that's actually part of the part of the focus of our great grocer project. Um, over the last couple of years, a researcher at Wayne State University has been has conducted a survey of all of the full-line grocery stores within the city. Um, they've done the survey of all the stores twice using the um, the Nutrition Environmental Measure Standard okay. um, developed by <laughs> University of Pennsylvania, I believe. And so uh, so what we are going to be able to do over the next year is look at the, the data from those two years of surveying um, and sort of get a sense of how each grocery store is doing in in providing, you know, access to affordable and quality produce. Um, and we're going to share those results publicly um, once we once we have that calculated. But I think also a lot of times people have experiences within an independent grocery, sto- grocery store where they don't um, where they don't they they don't get the best products or they have a bad service experience. And then they they're like, that's it. I'm not going back. I'm never giving my business to that store again. And if the store has made improvements, um, they don't know about it. But also, they don't often tell the store owner about those experiences or those reasons that they're not shopping at that store. And so owners can't make those changes. Um, so another part of that initiative is that we'll be working to connect community members with grocery stores in um in a way that they can give each other constructive feedback about what community residents want out of a store and how store owners can, can if they're interested in it um adjust their operations to give community members what they need because in a lot of time a lot of places an independent store actually has a lot more ability to make changes in their operations based on the feedback they get from their customers right. because they're an independent store there's you know one or two or three people making all the operations decisions rather than a corporation that has to, you know, change its policies to make changes within that store. So there are some grocery stores, like you said, like you mentioned, that are giving great service, great products, um, great, great job opportunities within the city of Detroit. So we want to let people know where those really great stores are and the stores that are not doing as great of a job offer offer opportunities for them to make the improvements that their local residents around their store want to see. So one one last thing before um, pulling from the report that you guys did in 2017, um, two statistics that I think are very telling. So 37% of Detroit adults um, are considered obese <clears throat> and 14% of Detroit's, 
Detroit adults um, said they have diabetes. Uh, I feel like if we, again, go back to food systems and make, you know, f- good food accessible is the goal. To see, I mean, the goal has to be to see these numbers go down drastically, right? Exactly. So one of the things that the Detroit Food Policy Council um, works with is the uh, healthcare working group that is really help trying, you know, developing strategies to help connect the healthcare industry and the food system so that, you know, we, we already talked about how in a lot of times people aren't getting information about nutrition within our education system, but our medical system is another place where they have an opportunity to get that information from their doctors. But doctors aren't actually trained with nutrition information. No, they're not. Um, nutritionists and dietitians are, but most people don't see a nutritionist or dietitian until they already have a diet-related health right. concern, and it's um, usually pretty advanced as well. So part of the emphasis of that of, of that working group is to is to provide more opportunities like the double up food bucks program um being used in the in clinics so the fresh prescription program is a program that operates in i think seven clinics around the city of detroit where specific physicians are trained when they have a patient with a diet related illness to ad- to advise them not only on medications they should take but also on dietary changes they should make and along with that information they administer to their patients double up food bucks you know, oh, free awesome. double up yeah. food box tokens that they can use at their local markets. And then Eastern Market partners with those with those clinics to provide a market on the premises once a week so that those those patients are getting the information from the doctor. They're receiving the benefits and then they're able to walk out the door and attend the farmer's market on premises to help them, you know, incorporate those habits into their lifestyle. And those kind of programs are the things that we want to um promote around the city as well as other ways to get better food into our health systems and our healthcare network. So the Detroit Food 2019 Infrastructure Innovation uh, takes place Thursday, March 7th, Friday, March 8th. Where is it at? It's at the Benson and Edith Ford Conference Center inside of the Taubman Center for Design Education at 460 West Baltimore. Can, is it open to the public? It's open to the public. There is a registration fee. Okay. We have a sliding registration fee that goes from 30 to $160. Um, you can register for the event on our website, www.detroitfoodpc.org. Awesome. Khabibi, thanks for being yeah. with us. Thank you so much very, for having me. Very interesting conversation. And important. And very important. Very important. Until next time, dine well, friends. <laughs>